This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Boomerang country and we wish to acknowledge them as traditional owners. We recognise First Peoples of Australia as the original storytellers of this country and pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Well, hello and welcome to episode four of Bite Big, a podcast about boss women leading big brands. I'm your host, Amber Bonney, and today I'm excited to be here with co-host Carolyn Bendel, the Chief Marketing Officer of Swinburne University of Technology and recent appointee to the MCC Committee. Welcome, Carolyn. Thank you very much, Amber. Wonderful to be here. Carolyn, you're an experienced marketing professional with background in communications and over 30 years across multiple sectors. Currently, you're at Swinburne and prior to that, the GM of marketing at ANZ Australia. So definitely a boss woman in our eyes. (laughs) You've been recognised with 16 Cairns Line Awards for Creative Excellence and you are a three-time Australian CMO Top 50. No small feat in itself. And the CMO, for any of you who are not familiar with that, recognise Australia most innovative marketing professionals. You also have professional qualifications in marketing, psychology, and you're a graduate of the Australian Institute of Company Directors. In your current role, you're a director of Swinburne Student Life and a director for preventative mental health organisation, The Man Cave, which we will talk about later on. I'm so thrilled to have you here and to get under the skin of your mantra and what drives you to bite big. So let's get into it. So in every episode, we talk about the co-host personal mantra and how that's influenced them and and how that shows up for them. My personal mantra is bite big and chew like hell. And what that means is I reach high. I don't get told that I can't do something. That's usually fuel to the fire of me having a good old crack. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I really make connections in a way that I build a network around me really when I need support, but I try not to limit um, possibility. Now, if you'll let me read out your mantra that we'll be focusing on today, it's be visible, be brave and be kind. So talk to us about how this came about and, and how this shows up for you. Yeah, it's a mantra. I guess I was refining for quite a few years and probably takes me back to the early days of my career and I really built on just the lessons that as I was going through from starting out um, through to the various jobs that I've had that to me they were the three things that not only I thought were important about becoming a good leader and a big brand manager but also just authentically what was going to work for me. So to me, the, the be visible, there's no doubt that's got a, a gender aspect to it. Quite early on, I really recognise the importance of having visible female leaders and the impact you can have on others by, by doing that. Being brave, and that's actually connected to the visibility bit, you actually have to find the courage to put yourself out there, out there and yeah. to do not only work that is brave, and we'll touch on that, I'm sure, as we, we go through our discussion today, but also just brave individually and doing things that are put you right outside your comfort zone. And being kind is a really interesting one, but in a way I'd say that's an element that was with me right from the start, but probably more suppressed. And it's actually as I've gained confidence and and become uh, more comfortable in that leadership position, I've learned that it helps you to become more authentically you and therefore to show, and when I say kind, I'm meaning that true sort of care compassion, you know, care for your people, care for your customers, care for the work. I found that actually was a real power that I had and was able to actually be an authentically kind and caring leader. And the way that people respond to that is really strong. So to be packaging the three up, it just became a personal mantra. I've spoken about it quite a bit over the years. And still to this day, it's the reference point that I'll have in my my work and my life as I as I go through. Yeah, I really love that. Do you have a T-shirt with that on it yet? I don't yet, but um, that's that's got to come, doesn't it? We can work (laughs) on that. We'll be having a a podcast launch, so maybe by that time you will. You mentioned that you've you've spoken about this before. Has this changed over time? Is this something that sort of came to you at the beginning of your career, midway through, or is this something that innately um, has been with you for a long time? Mm. Uh, look, I think it's definitely evolved over time. It's final final shape you know, has probably been in place or I put the words to it. You know, probably 
five, six, seven years ago. Um, but yeah, I do think it is something that has evolved over time. And probably the, the starting one for me was that notion of being visible. And I was fortunate enough, you mentioned I, I was um, GM of marketing at ANZ and actually have had a, a very long career at ANZ prior to moving across to Swinburne University. And uh, there was, yeah, I was fortunate enough to spend some time at ANZ with uh, some a leadership coach who really nailed that notion of visibility and visibility for female leaders. Um, and there was a few of us who actually went through quite a structured program to work on quite literally a visibility plan. And I thought that was a really clever way to tackle what has been a very long-standing challenge across not only corporate Australia, but actually across so many different workplaces and institutions to ensure that we're seeing the career progression and the visibility of of female leaders that can have an impact. Yeah, absolutely. And in your time in ANZ, during that period of, of looking at visibility, did you have great female mentors internally? It's an excellent question. And be honest, I, it's yeah, okay I'm going if to you be didn't. Honest. No, the, the answer to it is yes, yes, but uh, some of the most important and impactful mentors for me actually have been men. Keeping in mind, I'm 55 years old, so um, my career is over, you know, I started out over 30 years ago. And in those days, especially in the banking environment, because I started as a graduate in, in, in banking, um, a lot of the leaders were men. Women, and yeah. I have been very fortunate to have a number who truly believed in me and truly gave me opportunities, particularly when I started having children. My oldest is 23 years old. I have three children. And that's been a, another really important element to me to, again, show by example that you can have a career, raise your children, keep progressing and do those things. So I would like to say, and it's really important to me, that that men have as equal role as being great mentors and supporters as other women. But well, I think statistically <laughs> we understand that. Yep. If men are not supporters, we don't That's get right. the change That's we right. need. So, um, yeah, many absolutely. of the listeners might have heard of that the program that, that Elizabeth Broderick founded, the Male Champions of Change. That's been a critical part of having some of the biggest leaders in the country really championing uh, females along. That being said, I have absolutely um, had some some great female leaders over years. You know, that notion of women supporting other women is a very important one and it certainly flows through to now at my stage in my career, the time and effort I invest in in helping to mentor and coach other people. Yeah, setting up that next generation. That's amazing. And so, I mean, we, we understand it is harder for women to be visible and traditionally, you know, when you were starting your career, say 30 years ago, if someone's just coming into their career, what are some thoughts or ways that you can can help other people, you know, be more visible? I do think it is easier now. I think we've come a long way in terms of ensuring just that natural starting point of, of equity in terms of people in roles and career ambitions and not making assumptions that might have been made a generation ago about where you wanting to head or what you might be wanting to do in your life. I really do think across the board from a diversity inclusion, there is more a general acceptance of your life and more your balance. way. Yeah. yeah. But I think there is in many, not all, of course, but a natural inclination to, um, you know, things like let's take public speaking. It's such a classic one. Most people hate it yeah. <laughs> or, or start life not enjoying it. And I have had many conversations with people and used my own example of I also started off being absolutely terrified of doing that. But proactively, it comes back to the, the be brave element, mm. really pushed myself did some formal training around public speaking and then pushed myself. The only way to get better at it is to do it. And it's so a muscle to, really, it isn't it? Is it's a just muscle. The, the more you do it, yes. the better yep. you become. That's right. Overcome the fear, prepare properly and you can do it. Those things give you visibility and visibility 
begets visibility. The more you're out there and accept a public speaking your opportunity, more likely you're to be tapped on the shoulder to do it again or to do something different. I think social media has also made a difference because now we're all empowered to actually create more of our own content and post and get engaged about the things that you care about. Um, So there's also more levers, um, Mm. you know, now to actually create your own visibility. I think it does also start back with, and and this is the sort of training when when I mentioned that visibility plan we talked about, being clear on the things that what, what are your areas of expertise? What do you actually want to be known for and called on to comment in? And so that was also something for me to be clear about the things that I actually really care about and believe I've got a useful and worthwhile point of view. Yeah, that's really interesting. Have you ever been through the process of, um, not to sound morbid, but writing your own eulogy? I haven't. You haven't, Um, right. Um, Not to frighten you if you can see Carolyn's eyes looking at you right now. Um, I suppose the intent of that process is Mm. actually about helping to unpack your legacy. Mm. So it's really about what do you want to leave behind and, and how does that have impact? And sometimes that can be the easiest way to get to the heart of of what you believe in because it's like yeah. that core you know finale right it's it like is. a yeah. it's the it's that kind of end state so yeah I was, I was speaking in a in a recent episode about how we think about our mantras and also how we unpack our our purpose and our values and how that yeah. guides us and yeah that was one of the tools that yeah. we spoke it, about it's absolutely I I could say it would be quite a challenging confronting thing to do and my eyes probably popped out at you Amber because <laughs> Where are we heading here? <laughs> yeah. No, over recent times, you know, again, it's, it's you know, my stage in my life that I have lost both my parents over recent times and have gone through the exercise of writing my mother's eulogy. eulogy. And what you're saying is absolutely right. It was very much really wanting to capture her life and encapsulate her lasting legacy and what she's done so to tackle that myself. You don't, um, you're just sort of working yeah. backwards really rather yeah, than going yeah, forwards. Totally. And then also you'll have a draft ready for when yeah, that yeah. time comes. Whoever, a, if time comes very, to do it. It's, it's very efficient. Mm. Um, I was speaking in another episode, one of our guests talking about the, the Japanese framework of Ikigai, so where you're thinking about the four quadrants around um, what you're good at, what you get paid for. It's really about the, the synergy between what you love and your passion, what the world needs, what you get paid for, so your professional skills and what you're really good at. And you're looking, you know, in that Venn diagram for that sweet spot in the middle. Mm-hmm. That might be a, a less morbid tool to <laughs> <laughs> to reference, but, you know, you sort of get to the same spot, um, which is really interesting. I want to ask you about a time, if you can recall, past, you know, or, or present, if there is one, where you didn't feel seen and the impact that that had on you? I actually quite clearly map the career ambitions I've had and I would suggest the drive that has continued the whole way through actually does take me back to my childhood and I am an only girl of three brothers and came from a family who truly believed in education and and have given me amazing opportunities I did find at both my school and indeed the early influences at home around what to study, what careers to look at, there was a lens of you're the girl as opposed to the conversations with the boys. And yeah. and similarly, as I said, at my school, most of the way through the types of jobs and careers that were being suggested, I always felt there was such a gender lens to it. Mm-hmm. And I actually had a really strong reaction to it. And even at an early age felt the sort of unfairness and actually that's just not right. Um, So to me, visibility in a way was important that I felt an inner need to actually, you know, show everyone that that's actually not right and I'm capable of more than what I believe was being suggested to me as, as likely career paths and to be honest, was more about career paths until the point I got married and then had kids and that was going to be the end. And I just in- intuitively knew that wasn't actually what I wanted and actually wasn't fair. So I think a point where I didn't see see or feel I was seen quite in the way that I needed to be really takes me all the way back there. That being said, I have had some incredible conversations with my 
mother then over 20, 30 years of how she had very limited opportunities, didn't even get to finish high school, let alone go on and and create a, a career of her own. And, you know, she was my biggest fan and enormous supporter and and I know really proud of what I was doing and that's been, uh, you know, exactly what I spoke about when I when I did do her eulogy but an incredible influence and, and drive for me. An advocate. And how lucky I feel, certainly I've got a, a young daughter, that it's just not even a thing at her Correct. age group. Of course there, you know, are still biases in, in education and in lots of areas but certainly I imagine that she thinks she can do anything and and we work really hard in our household to try and remove gender from you know almost every situation where we think it's possible absolutely and and that's what i meant earlier i i do feel thankfully we are in a different world and stage like that i also have two adult daughters as well as a, a, a just adult son and um Exactly the same. It's irrespective of gender, their their education, their career ambitions, their goals in life, what they're wanting to do, and and it's exactly the way it should be. And what did you study first, and how how did your brothers and dad react to that? <laughs> Just to get really deep down <laughs> yeah, and personal. But, yeah, this has become very personal. Hasn't <laughs> it? So I actually started. So I will give give credit to a career practitioner at my school back in the day. It was called HSC, not VCE. Yes, yeah. Got my results. They were strong and a career counsellor said to me there was a very strong push to go down the the path of of accounting um that's my family many of them have studied business and accounting and a career practitioner suggested to me that actually what about marketing it's a more creative communicative outlet than accounting and I had already started to be interested also in psychology mm. so it's um, a perfect synergy of those, a, those skills two. Yeah. and once you and to be honest I really hadn't heard much about marketing didn't know much about it Monash had a double degree program down there so you could major an arts degree in psych and a and a business degree marketing. Once I started to dig into that, that felt so right. And then back to your question, I think there was a little bit of shock horror that I was not going to be doing a doing the commerce degree, yeah. doing accounting, but it absolutely was the right choice and continues to have been. I actually really do enjoy commercial environments and the whole world of business, but I've always just relished the the people connection and being able to be more communicative and creative in my work. That's awesome. I want to talk about impact because in your bio, it talks about your contribution to a more inclusive world where, you know, diversity is valued. So I want to understand firstly around how do you know when you're having impact? How do you measure that? Personally, and then also if there's any uh, guardrails for professionally, how Swinburne, you know, promote or document impact, I'd be really interested to hear mm. that. I think I'd probably start by by saying the, you know, the the two big brands that I've had the privilege to work on being ANZ and Swinburne, both have very strong ethos around diversity and inclusion and therefore I think it's the reason why Certainly with ANZ, I was I, I was there for so long and certainly with Swinburne in terms of why I was attracted to, to work to there. To the role, yep. Yeah, because it really is something that is personally important to me to be able to work with brands and, and my work in general that are doing something positive towards that whole notion of diversity and inclusion. I think there's numerous ways you can measure impact. There is no doubt you can feel it personally in terms of what your, your people will say to you, the way people will sit down and and talk in interviews about reasons why they want to join your organisation. It's a good litmus test to hear what they say. And, you know, often things like being an inclusive workplace and doing visible things out in the community is a real reason for people to choose to work with you. I think it also then shows, you know, in a marketing sense and when you're doing your sort of brand tracking or market research, it can come through formally and you you start being a, a, real a brand of choice as having strong recognition, but strong recognition with a positive resonance, I suppose, is what you're looking for. Exactly. And then I, I suppose from a, a team perspective or a culture perspective, it's then things like retention yep. of employees. 
and, and loyalty. Yeah, yeah, it absolutely is. And, you know, we've been talking a lot about visibility today um, and in teams, and I've had the, the privilege to lead large teams, it's important that that diversity is visible in the teams. And so that is, you know, something that to me, and we're not just talking gender diversity, I'm talking of all aspects of, of diversity that we bring all of these differences and wonderful things we have to the the table. So um, I have consciously looked to build teams that that represent that and and can celebrate diversity. That's awesome. In terms of kindness and the role of kindness in business, because it it can be contentious because kindness is one of those things where it's either seen as being gendered and soft and, mm. and and a bit fluffy. And, you know, with so much emphasis these days on businesses developing, you know, purpose-led strategies, sometimes it ends up just being, you know, something on a page and no mm. one's actually practising. For you, what's your experience about bringing kindness to the boardroom so it's got a seat at the table? Yeah. Um, it's an excellent point you make that that notion that kindness is softness and therefore not tough enough to be successful or to make hard calls is a easy sort of easily associated but the way I have really thought about kindness is as I, I mentioned earlier this notion of care and genuine care not just words on 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 paper and to me it is all connected that you know a genuine care for your 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 people in your team translates to a genuine care for the work that we do and the impact that it has on our customers and prospective customers but it also to me that genuine care for what you're doing and if i can't really where i landed is if i if i find myself genuinely not caring about something then i don't want to do it it's it's just not worth the the, the effort it's interesting this notion of yes in senior roles or around a board table I guess it comes back to this notion of authenticity. I actually think more and more that is what businesses are looking for, leaders and directors who actually can bring a, a true and authentic self. Humility, um, empathy, you know, they're all Vulnerability, yeah. all of those things. Um, and it's actually, it's just, it's not soft. Sometimes being kind and caring, for example, means actually finding the courage to have a tough conversation, to yeah. actually tell someone how it is or or to be yeah, honest about what's going on here. So um, I think there is a bit of reframing that's needed mm, around um, kindness and a kinder world. And it's interesting, I, as you mentioned, I've just recently joined the committee of the Melbourne Cricket Club, which is one of Australia's biggest and oldest clubs and you know, an, an amazing history and an amazing institution. And as part of the interview process, um, I actually had a lengthy conversation with the president there about that whole notion of kindness because he too picked that word up off my CV and wanted to Wanted to understand more. what yeah. it was. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, without going into detail, um, it's been, what, five months Yeah, four, recently? four months. Yeah, yeah. and yeah, were you, the... you know, I suppose with an institution that's so old, there's a lot of baggage and I, I'm sure mm. that they were highly um, strategic in your appointment in in knowing that it, for their own brand image, mm. they need leaders who do have these skills. Yeah, absolutely. And it's what appealed to me when, when I was first approached that here is an opportunity and, you know, so much of this is about making the most of an opportunity that there was genuine intent to look at the composition of that committee, knowing the history, which, you know, as most people would would imagine, was entirely male up until not that long ago. Yeah. Um, the committee there, um, over time, there's been some amazing women who have pioneered their way in there now and there was an opportunity, again, to look at the seats around the table and not only from a gender sense but that is still important and, you know, I'm pleased to say there's now six women on that committee. It's the highest number that's ever been there. Uh, but it was also about the skill set and they were looking for someone who has a real experience and a real lens on the customer experience and how effective yet yeah, communications and engagement can can help this mm. engage the community. And with an experience in consumer branding, I, I always say that when you understand consumer-led 
branding, marketing and strategy. It is such a unique skill because it really puts the customer at the heart of everything you're doing from a human-centred design perspective. So I imagine that's actually a, an amazing skill that you're bringing to you know, such a traditional organisation. Yeah, and it is. And having that clarity of, you know, what that brand stands for, that absolute Christmas um, of, 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 of brand, your brand strategy and what, what you're aiming to do there, it enables you then to, the brand can manifest and, and be communicated and activated in so many ways as long as you stay true, you stay true to true what to is that. that brand promise. And I've always believed in the importance that, you know, as marketers and good communicators, we can make all the promises in the world. It's actually then delivering on the brand experience and it's bringing those two together that create really powerful, effective brands. So Absolutely. Yeah. And that is a good segue into bravery and risk-taking do you feel like that appointment was a um, <laughs> was a risk for you or a, a brave decision or is there a time in your career where you did really feel like you stepped out and took a, a brave move forward? Oh, I would say there's certainly been some times um, I've, I've had to, yes, call on courage to take a brave step forward. Um, in terms of the Melbourne Cricket Club uh, committee decision, that was really more a case of I still feel I need to be brave when I'm walking in the door. Right now I'm very new. There's some, you know, incredible people around that table that you really do have to work past that, the good old imposter syndrome a little bit yeah. and, and really find your seat at the table and find your voice. So that's something, you know, we're all learning and we're all working and that's something I continue to, to work on. But um, more broadly, brave decisions, I think the, the decision to leave ANZ was actually one that was a really hard one to make. Um, How many years were you there? Oh, I hesitate to say. Can I say over 20? Yes, just over 20. <laughs> it's over 20. General, I joined as yeah. a graduate and wow. then worked my way through multiple countries, multiple um, divisions, all of their divisions I mean, actually. I suppose with an organisation um, so big, you know, huge. you can cross departments. There are so much opportunity but it does yeah. say a lot about, I suppose, the culture of the business that you stayed there for that That's long. exactly right. A, that they fostered growth and development for you but also that there was enough interest to yeah, yeah to stay for that long that that is exactly um the way i would phrase that as well it was that constant career progression and opportunity and interest i i do have a passion to constantly be learning and growing as well as um you know they were i would say az was quite ahead of its time in terms of supporting working mothers and when when they you're trying to balance that having children and and continuing to grow your career so that's absolutely what what kept me there but there did come a point a while ago that it was just clear to me that you know i couldn't see that that ongoing growth runway one, yeah. and it was time to find something different for me to do and, you know, as I mentioned earlier, some personal things happening in my life, I just needed to step out, have a really good think about what was next. Um, but, you know, leaving behind my team was probably one of the hardest things um, I've done. Um, I care greatly for them. Of course, you know, quite a few years now down the track from doing that, still so closely connected to them. People don't yeah. really travel. I know a few people going through that experience right now and the, the bravery of having been somewhere for so long and then considering the move, it really is, you know, when you're so familiar with an organisation yeah. and you're so embedded in their culture, it really is a brave move to to take that next step forward, not not knowing where you might yeah, land. Yeah, what I was going to do, yeah. Um, but I knew it was going to be in a different sector. That was part of the you know, the deal I made with myself. I'm going to take this big step. I'm going to give myself some time to just heal and think about things and then move into something very different. And higher education came my way and it's been amazing. It's been amazing. And what, what are you most proud of uh, regarding impact at Swinburne? There's a couple of things I would say, but I think the way I'd, I'd pull it together is I started at Swinburne University of Technology in March 2020 in Melbourne. And so for those listeners who, um, particularly Melbourne-based one, would know that was when mm, then great time. lockdown. <laughs> like yeah. One word, lockdown. Essentially, close to my first two years then at university were off campus. We had no students on campus, no, all the staff were sent home to work from home. So to me, 
there was a big task ahead personally to build my acumen around how does higher education tick and really build that acumen yet quickly, but also build relationships as brand leaders and marketing leaders you know, stakeholder relationships are just so crucial and also the team and to get to know your over 100 people. And I imagine you would have been hiring new people. Yeah, oh, absolutely. There are people I've never met in person as we brought them in the door. And many of my own team who were already there, I hadn't met in person um, and it was only sort of 18 months later that I met them. Um, But nonetheless, I guess I would say I'm proud personally that I think I was able to do that but at the same time then really I th- lift not only the the marketing function but the 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 positioning of that marketing function um, from what was to a large extent a sort of a demand receiver from other parts of the university. We want to do this, very yeah. executional, do this, do that. You know, COVID you know, as horrible as it was, also gave us opportunity that, um, you know, some of that demand dried up. It gave us opportunity to reshape actually we're here to drive growth. We're here to drive brand growth, growth in our student numbers, overall health of the university. So it gave us a chance to reshape ourselves as actually being writing our own mission, being very clear on that, and to me reorganising the team to be much more empowered to actually do the things that are going to have impact. So, yeah, it was a very challenging three years, but I'm actually really proud of where where that organisation is I mean, it was, a, it was a time of great reflection, wasn't it? Like an unprecedented opportunity mm. and even though, as you said, I mean, we experienced that as a small business but with our clients that are all big brands went through the same sort of process, mm. it's an opportunity to reflect and in some ways sort of pause or, or restart or, or reconnect. And, and also innovate and I think that's, um, you know, one of the, the the biggest things we did at Swinburne during COVID years and 2020 was when Open Days, which is your biggest brand showcase and the biggest experience moment for your prospective students, was off the table. In a very short amount of time, we built a online uh, gamified universe of Swin Swinburne University, which we called Swintopia. It was a fantastic engagement platform and being a university of technology, what I loved about it was it was actually the brand in action, that here is a a technology university in the space of literally about 10 weeks, we built this gamified world of our campus with content and academics that were represented as little avatars and the best experience of what we could deliver from Swinburne in a, a, a text and a digital format. So to me, those sorts of opportunities, I, I'm sure you're this, the same. I think most most people listening will feel the same. Also, our ways of working have changed forever. And I think that that is another positive that has shown that there are many ways that we can get our work done and ways that we can you know, effectively balance our lives. That's not necessarily the traditional um, nine to five yeah, model. Nine to five, Monday to Friday yeah, that in the doesn't office. doesn't serve community commute, The anymore. commute, the hours of commute time that, that people have now saved. Yeah, that's incredible. And regarding the innovation, has that sort of reshaped now how Swinburne approach, I suppose, being customer-centric in the communication with potential um, students? Mm. Has that sort of pivot to being online had now a ongoing impact on how you communicate in being almost like a multi-channel approach. Yeah, yeah. So certainly if I take it back to as a university, the way our students are learning is now much more hybrid in in, in its fashion because, again, it, it's not something that was going to revert back to just being physically there for every lecture and every activity. That being said, the physical experience is really important, so having the hybrid offering. But that absolutely then translates into how we communicate. We've developed a very clear positioning for Swinburne, which we encapsulate around a tagline of next gen now, that is our promise that um, we are at that cutting edge of technology, of innovation, of entrepreneurship right now. And so if you are really looking for those skills, those next gen skills and experience, we're a really good choice for you. So, you know, I mentioned earlier that it's really important in my view, fundamentally, the brand brands must live up to their promise. And so I think at Swinburne, I'm I'm really fortunate. I I, I work for a, a, another wonderful female 
boss there. So we have our Vice-Chancellor, Professor Pascal Cuesta. Um, she started not at a very similar time to myself and I really feel her mission, the way she's shaped her aspiration for the university and the way we've crafted the brand around that is very aligned and that's made us, I think, much more distinctive in, in the way we communicate and what we do. And that's really important that you mentioned the connection back to heart, if you like, so the connection back to the essence of what Swinburne's trying to do and then how you amplify that in an authentic way. Not only is that going to help the university grow, but also I imagine retention of staff, contentment of staff. Mm. Have you seen that reflected in in how people are feeling about working as employees for the organisation and your team? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, good brands manifest not only in yeah, a solid customer value proposition. It's got to be. It's also the employee value proposition, mm. and people, you know, attracting people who believe in what you're doing and want to contribute to it. The absolute, you know, joy of working for a university is when you look at its purpose. Um, and we've framed ours as its people and technology for a better world. Yeah. Um, our purpose is to produce not only graduates but our research, our um, activities, wherever we are operating, is really um, unpacking that nexus between how technology and the people who use that technology can do amazing things. So that's a pretty wonderful purpose. Yeah, and that absolutely helps us. You know, it's it's a really hot market trying to attract people in, but a lot of people really connect to that. Yeah, I remember in the early... 2000s, I worked in the UK and I worked for an organisation that only did employee branding. And I'd never heard of employee branding back then. But what was really interesting is those big organisations had completely separate budgets for consumer facing initiatives and employee marketing. So they had two separate marketing teams, two separate propositions. I mean, that just seems, you know, unheard of now that you would have. I mean, this is sort of pre when you know, there was social media and where, you know, people had websites that, that anyone really went to it was sort of pre that. And it just seems so amazing that you would have a separate channel. Yeah. Now yeah. your employees are your biggest advocate. And so it all starts in and influences out, Ouch. but it's coming from the one place. Yeah. It's not a separate tactical strategy. It's actually just an authentic or should be. Absolutely. An authentic and the expression. risk of misalignment by having that tackled separately you know, is, is, is crazy. I, I would say the other thing, having worked in services organisations, so financial services, higher education, it's even more critical because it is your people who deliver that service and they, and in both cases they're long-term relationships you have with your customers or with your students. And so, therefore, the alignment of the people who are actually delivering that experience to your customers, the two go hand in hand. They have to, yeah. Wasn't always that way, so it's mm. good good progress. I want to talk a bit about the term boss and brand boss, and there was a lot of discussion when we were developing this podcast internally around taking ownership of the word boss because that is typically being quite gendered as well. Yes. And I want to understand a few things, but one question is um, how do you know as a boss that you're making the right decision? It's interesting. I, I think as a boss, part of it is, as you said, it's an interesting term and not one that sits overly comfortable. I'd never refer to myself as a boss. But actually part of it is if you sit and just listen to others, you know, people will refer to their boss and then, you know, you have to really recognise, well, that's you, right? So Buck, I feel the same way Buck, about Buck that term. To, yeah. Um, yeah. What we When we were thinking about this podcast, what we liked is is just referencing boss women, mm. boss women, boss mm. women, just to help take or says claim ownership. But I think the the rejection to the word boss, it feels so autocratic it in its approach. Yes. It doesn't have the yeah. kindness or the empathy. Yeah, and the um, style. And, and the style. Yeah, I think yeah. we all, that's right, we have this sort of archetype of what a boss is, which, of course, is, is not the case. No, um, no. So I do think there is part of the sort of, Acceptance that the buck stops with you when you are leading a, a function, a team, you know, you, you are the boss. Um, and then, you know, how do you know if if you're having an impact? 
I honestly believe that if you care enough to listen and to find out by asking the right questions, by showing your vulnerabilities, and I again, that's something I feel it's really important to actually show quite a bit of my authentic self, including, um, you know, if got something wrong or misunderstood, being able to comfortably say that, you will hear from your people. You'll certainly, you're obviously in a marketing sense, we can gauge our, our impact and our effectiveness through all our performance measures. But if we're talking about impact in terms of the organisation and our people, I think if you create the environment that, that people feel comfortable to give feedback or, or show it and you're listening carefully enough, you'll because find it's, out. It's so much about, you know, if you think about leadership in a more contemporary way, you're establishing that sort of North Star, so certainly in your department or in your business. So, you know, where are you heading? But in other ways, you then sort of, you're acting as a support role to everybody else in the team. Yeah. So, you know, you're you're leading in a perspective of this is where we're heading and you're making those critical decisions. And, you know, I went to a conference this year and there was a lot of talk about people in the creative industry looking for higher wages and, you know, my, you know, there's lots of narrative around my boss earns so much more than me, but I'm the one producing the work. And spoken a lot about when you're in leadership, it's not just the experience you'll pay for, it's also the risk. Mm. You're taking the risk when you're a le- reputational risk, the risk in being when the buck stops with you, you've got to make that final decision. That's mm. a lot of pressure on yeah. someone. Um, so it's sort of the, I suppose, the duality of being that great empathic support person, but also being the person where you're setting the benchmark for where to head, but also you're the last you're the last gatekeeper of that decision-making. Yeah, that's right. I think and those who have worked with me and and the way, the way I represent our organisational design at, at Swinburne is I actually depict the CMO at the bottom of the org chart. Yeah. Um, and it's really intentional to reflect exactly what you you just said that I realise in terms of the way we develop our strategies and the way we go to market, it actually it starts, you know, CMO at the bottom and actually moves on out. But my role is to do my utmost to ensure clarity of mission, right people and resources at, at the team's disposal, helping to prioritise the work. Um, anyone who works in marketing uh, will have experience that demand usually exceeds our capacity um, yep. to do the work. So my role is about actually what does get done and how do we do it. Um, and also I mentioned stakeholder management before and I think that effective leaders and bosses really convey to their people that you've got their back and you give them confidence to do their work and feel empowered to do their work and that there's times where you're the one who needs to take on the hard conversations or the advocacy piece. Um, and so those things are not easy, but those things are actually what I think then has the impact in the team. If they feel supported and cared for, you will get fantastic work from people. So we've spoken about vulnerability and empathy, uh, language alert. I want to understand What's been your biggest fuck up? What sticks out for you where you go, actually, that was the wrong decision or, you know, that could have been that you were trusting the wrong person yeah. or it just could have been, yeah, you just made a big mistake. Big mistake. Yeah. Because yeah. I think it's very easy. Yeah. The reason why I ask this question, it's very easy when you're listening to amazing people like you and, you know, such an incredible bucket list of achievements and awards, it can sometimes feel um, for listeners who might not be at that point go, that's so unachievable. You know, there's so much perfection attached to that. So I think it's also really interesting to ask the questions around what have been those mistakes. Yeah. Well, let me start by saying, of course, there's been a million mistakes and we all learn (laughs) (laughs) along the way. And, And I would emphasize that to me, you know, the the biggest lesson is just when you make mistakes, just take the time to reflect. Reflection is really important. So then you you take the learnings out of it and that's a positive no matter what's happened. For me, the the biggest mistake without a doubt, it's a leadership mistake. Um, And uh, something that actually I felt I personally paid the price for, but so did more than one team member. And it's about when you have a toxic 
person in your team and I allowed that person and I think, you know, if I'm really being honest, I, you know, it was partially an excuse but I allowed that person to operate for way, way, way too long, sort of kidding myself that indispensable, amazing skill set so therefore we'll put up with bad behaviour. That is absolutely, completely the wrong wrong thing to do. And I regretted that. And as I said, um, more than one of us paid a price for quite a long time that we got into some really, really difficult workplace relations issues. And I should have dealt with that a lot sooner. And that's an example of where I I was not brave enough. And so, yes, I learned a lesson from it. But yeah, to me, that was by far the biggest career mistake. And as I felt, um, it took an enormous toll on me, but it also, I felt very guilty that there was impact on others. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that because it's, you know, obviously those times of acknowledgement, like they're they're painful, you know, memories Mm. thinking about them. Was that a situation where your intuition was telling you, but the weighing up of the bravery and the, I suppose, the consequence Mm. of of taking that step that you probably intuitively knew was right – um, seemed greater than the risk of doing yeah, nothing. Yeah, yeah, it absolutely was. As I said, that that to me is an example of where I I wasn't brave enough. I absolutely, when I really am honest with myself, I knew there was problems. And as I said, it was quite easy to have the internal voice and even actually externally with conversations with others, put the justifications in that, I oh, don't. No, this is good. We, you know, need, as I said, this skill set and, and, you know, the work that's been delivered. But actually it was more about facing into something that, that I should have acted on. Yeah. Well, I, I don't think you're alone in there. I've certainly had personal experiences like that too, mm. where I have felt guilt for allowing behaviours to happen for longer than than necessary and then the impact that has on other people. Mm. And I imagine that, you know, many people listening to this would resonate with that story. So then back to my point about, well, then take the lesson from it. And as I said, it was a painful lesson, but it absolutely strengthened now my resolve that never again. And I will absolutely call out bad behaviour and hold others to account to do the same. I think that for anyone who is leading teams and aspiring to to be into more seniorship boss roles, um, you know, to me that is a really important thing to keep in mind. Some of those leadership skills are quite hard to learn. There's not necessarily, you know, there's lots of books around you know, business leaderships and all sorts of types of, of leadership and, and being empathic. and um, But some of those some of those scenarios, there's no rule book for. It's very hard to, yep. to know what the right decision and when that decision is. There's no doubt that, yeah, there's textbooks galore and there's mm. courses galore, but, you know, it's school of life. We, we all know. We all have our own journey and the things, the experiences you have in life will shape you and you will learn. But there are some things that can help you along the way, like having people that you feel you can call on for counsel or or advice, um, taking the time to reflect and be introspective and being clear on on your, you know, over time, your personal values and your mantra. What has been your biggest B moment? So boss, boss women, bite big. There's a lot of Bs going on. There's a lot of really great words starting with B. Can you think of something that, you know, that sort of floats to the top for you? Yes, I would say that the the biggest B moment um, for me was a a campaign that I developed and and led at at ANZ, which is all around our sponsorship of the Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras. Um, And I will put it in the the bold and brave category. And, you know, I I need to take you back to about 2013, 2014, when it was not as common and certainly not for, you know, major banks to be playing in spaces like that. Mm. And, Collectively with our creative agency, we came up with this idea of, of gay TMs. What if ANZ came out uh, with gay TMs unexpected overnight just before the Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras started? So it 
was a brave decision. Almost like guerrilla tactics. In it, the, it was absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It was meant to be exactly a yeah. tactical thing. Nobody knew. It. We literally created these gay TMs under the cover of darkness and unveiled them all at once on the eve of the Mardi Gras. I feel um, nervous for you just thinking about this because if you look at what the Bud Light situation at the moment yeah. with the marketing team responsible for that and that has massively backfired for them. And we've all seen it where, you know, these big activations can go wrong. So the risk there, yeah, yeah. The, the bravery. But, you know, yeah. tell us how that went. Yeah. So, I, it, um, so yeah, it was brave. But I think it's it, – it, and it was a considerable amount of money. It's big, and, and even that in itself was a bold move because it wasn't about typical media spends, which is where you, you know, typically spend media dollars. All the investment went into creating the pieces of art. They were literally 12 pieces of art. And um, so for those, you'll need to Google it if you haven't seen yeah, we'll it. Yeah, we'll put a link in. Yeah, um, these beautiful it. crystal covers, each telling an individual story on 12 ATMs that turned into And so were they ATMs. sort of reskinned? Is that what happened? Yeah, the ATMs were, were reskinned. Re yep. So it was, you know, committing a lot of money in the hope that actually it, it made a really bold and brave but important statement by ANZ of their belief in diversity, inclusion and respect. And, and that was what was yeah. behind that. And I guess in terms of managing risk, ANZ had, it still has, a very, very strong and active pride network internally and they were the ones who had first advocated and secured the sponsorship of the Mardi Gras but we'd never taken it to a brand level and activated as a brand mm. around it until we, we did this campaign. Um, and did you talk a lot about the potential consequences and then made, you know, took the risk to make that decision? I imagine there would have been a lot of stakeholder discussion around. Well, in a way, and, and I've reflected on this a few times, if we engage too many stakeholders, my belief is You'd we never, never would it. have done it. Mm. Um, so I feel that way actually, about doing consumer research. Yeah. <laughs> um, too much consumer research will kill an idea very yeah, quickly. It actually was a very small group of people and I engaged a couple of very senior leaders, including our chief risk officer at ANZ at the time, but it really was about getting some senior but small number of support and then, you know, finding the courage to do this. We knew that, of course, there was going to be some negative backlash, but what was actually really wonderful to see was, um, you know, really activating because the whole thing was just PR activated. It was just social channels and then the media picked it up and it went literally globally. But it was the social communities themselves that managed the backlash. So people would try to yet criticise, you know, ANZ for doing this, for wasting money, for getting involved in, in something that they don't belong in. And we were able to really, you know, clearly assert, again, our commitment to diversity, inclusion, respect for our people and our customers and the community at large, but also the community itself jumped in there and really provided support for for the work. And you know, little did we know, but timing-wise, we were only a couple of years off then the plebiscite and where then many companies across Australia started to get involved. But back then, they, they very didn't. progressive there was, decision. There were not major corporates um, involved in that space, but we believed we had a right to be authentically there, and I do believe that that had true impact that work and important impact. And really, would have a lot of organisations would have been watching that. Yeah. So you know, really leading the way, which is exceptionally brave. Congratulations on that. In many of your awards that you've won, did did you win? multiple awards for that. Yeah, that's so you mentioned in the intro the 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 can awards for creativity. It was the gay the gay TM and and then associated activities for years to follow that really brought all of all of that award and the outstanding one for the creative agency, I'll give TBWA a plug yeah. at that point, um who who led the, the, the creative work there, that resulted in winning the Grand Prix for Outdoor um, in Amazing. 2014, I think I'm right in saying, over 5,000 entries and it won the I mean, that is top, exceptional. So the most exceptional outdoor activation in the world that year. Well, that is an yeah. exceptional B moment. <laughs> I'm not sure we'll be able to top that in any, in any episode. That's incredible. Um, what a testament to your leadership, the trust in your agency. You know, I always say that any great work is an outcome of 
the partnership that you have with your client. Mm. And so for you, it's the partnership and the trust that you showed to TBWA and on vice versa, the fact that they were felt like that they could present something back to you that was going to be accepted. It's really a mutual pathway, isn't it? Yeah, we we had a great partnership and, you know, for years did some amazing work together. And um, it certainly taught me the value of, yes, a partnership where you really can trust each other, uh, again, just brings fantastic work to the fore. Incredible. I want to go back a little bit now and just talk about something that you wish you had seen or read or heard about if you could talk to your younger self. Is there something that comes to mind that's really inspired you, a piece of work? It could be a podcast or a book or an article. There's a couple. I, I would say one book that I read, which I actually wish I'd read, you know, at least a decade earlier, is an autobiography um, by a a, a woman by the name of Catherine Graham. Um, It's called A Personal History. And she took over the Washington Post back in the 1960s when her husband, Phil Graham, unexpectedly died. And she grew that newspaper to be the most amazing entity and it's the way she wrote her personal story it's always stayed with me and I actually think it has been made into a movie but for those who can be bothered I'd really encourage you to read we'll the put book. the link in yeah I, um, haven't, I haven't read it yeah um, she's just phenomenal I just remember being very inspired by her and I wish um and again you know here's someone operating in the 1960s and you know backdrop of Washington and US politics. Yeah, it's like um, Mad Men style yeah, still. Yeah, incredible yeah. lady. Uh, probably a more recent one that, you know, I, I, I'm really quite addicted to a, a podcast, Chat 10 Look 3, which oh. is Annabelle Crabbe and Lee Sales. And that I love it because firstly they listen. entertain me endlessly and I love both of them professionally, the work that they do. But what I also really love about that podcast and wish, you know, we we had that sort of thing going back is, you know, I've talked about that sort of importance of authenticity and I love how both of them incredibly smart women doing incredibly important things. But in that podcast, you know, they're just funnier and they're mates and they get the giggles and they're messy and they talk about their kids and they I just, just love that they yeah. will sit in like a wardrobe together. Yeah, they do. In exactly. the ABC yeah. with just their phones. Yeah. Like it wasn't till yeah. even their later episodes they actually had any proper yeah. production. They've been on holidays before and they go in a room and then one of the kids come in because they want something, whatever. And I just love that because it just puts that absolute real life messiness in there, even for, you know, a couple of women who are just absolutely kicking goals everywhere. But, um, yeah, I just, you know, their relatability is so wonderful yeah for all of us so it's a it's a really great example I remember when I was just sort of getting into podcasts where they weren't really a thing a friend of mine Sebastian who is in this industry uh said oh you got to get on to chat 10 looks three and I'm like what is that it's just even the name is just a cracker well we're coming to the end uh Carolyn I would like to say just a massive thank you for taking the time to to come into our studio today and for showing us your version of biting big and your aspiring mantra, be visible, be brave and be kind. I've taken a couple of notes you would have seen me squirrelling away at. Um, I really loved when you talked about visibility and showing people that you're capable of more and the different ways that you've inspired other people to be more visible and how you see your role in being the champion of um, advocating for others. I think that's really important. I also really appreciate, I suppose, the the vulnerability of um, you talking about your early experience growing up and in a generation where you felt like you weren't always necessarily seen in the same way as your brothers and the expectations that they had on on you moving into, you know, a sector and you sort of rebelling against that and, and going into marketing psychology. I think that's really amazing. And I think the the gay TM, I, I want to check out that case study and we'll definitely put the link in there because I think that is a really great example of being a boss woman and taking, taking those risks and being really, really brave in the way that you move forward. Now, as we mentioned in other podcasts, this is produced and made by women for women. And to show our gratitude, we donate $500 on behalf of all of our co-hosts. And today you've chosen the Man Cave. A Man Cave is an organisation that helps with 
men and mental health and emotional intelligence empowering boys to become really great men. And I know we spoke earlier about the importance of, if we need to move the dial, the importance of having real male advocates um, to create change. So I'm sure this is the reason that you've chosen um, the Man Cave, but talk about how that came about for you. Yeah. um, So I am lucky enough to be a director of the Man Cave and, yeah, I guess in a way, you know, on face value it might seem strange that for someone who's very much about female empowerment and equality for women and and here we are on a podcast produced and made by women (laughs) that I'm donating to the Man Cave, but there really is actually some quite um, strong rationale to that. What I love about the Man Cave, and it's led by an amazing, amazing uh, man, Hunter Johnson, who founded it and continues to lead it today, but it is all focused about it's preventative uh, in that it is about engaging with boys on that transition point from boyhood to to manhood. Um, So typically 14, 15, 16-year-old olds and programs run in schools and online there and very much about that that notion of emotional intelligence and trying to encourage them and allow them to take the mask off you don't always have to be the tough guy we all have feelings we um, all vulnerability doesn't it yeah and just the importance of sort of caring and respecting for each other including of course women um so I think the work they do is incredibly important. As I said, it's about generational change. So, you know, preventative and creating healthy masculinity in more and more boys as they grow into men. But it's also systemic because healthy men operating in society absolutely then helps women um, in many ways in for everything from, you know, we, we see less suicide and more intact families, domestic violence reduced and actually happier. Employment healthy. opportunities for women too. That's right. More, I suppose, diversity in what that looks like in terms of so. working hours, part-time, um, much more flexibility. That's right. And it's wonderful to see a lot of a lot of men doing that as well. So, it, again, it's for all of us. So, yeah, the Man Cave, amazing um, right. organisation. Well, we'll definitely have those links um, in the notes. Thank you for bringing that to our attention. I haven't heard of the Man Cave, but I'm definitely going to check them out now. Well, thank you so much. Um, you're definitely uh, tick the box of boss woman in my eyes and I'm sure in many of our listeners' eyes. Until the next episode, I've been your host, Amber Bonnie, and may you bite big and chew like hell. Thanks, everyone. Bye.